The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. And good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Kenneth Fry speaking for the new bulletin. Tonight we give you something entirely new and different. Standing beside me is the young man who has declared publicly that on Christmas Eve he intends to commit suicide, giving as his reason, quote, I protest against the state of civilization, end quote. Ladies and gentlemen, the new bulletin takes pleasure in presenting the man who is fast becoming the most talked-up person in the whole country, John Doe. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, February 13th, 2020. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Last week, we introduced our Just Right Freedom panel in the first of a two-part discussion that concludes today. And last week, our conversation centered more around news events and political issues, including, of course, Brexit and climate change, before segueing in the last portion of the show into a broader discussion of politics in general and how philosophy drives the direction in which politics moves. And continuing that theme of left and right, socialism and capitalism, over the course of the next hour... We'll once again be hearing from the voices of Paul McKeever, Danielle Metz, Ted Harlson, Gord Mood, Dave Dernan, Liz Bendell, Robbie Smink, and of course, yours truly. As always, it all gets underway right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, and follow us on SoundCloud. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, our archived broadcasts, and of course, where we always encourage you to offer your financial support and in so doing become part of our effort to enlighten others about the true nature of freedom and capitalism. Uh, Robbie Smink, but uh, one of the things that's always um, intrigued me and I'd like to have the your opinion about this is I've never been able to figure out why the left which is controlled by you know billionaires like Bezos and Zuckerberg and the guy running Twitter and all that I mean these guys are all successful capitalists but they're at the forefront of the censorship phenomenon that's going going about now especially on the right wing so if you take it to its logical conclusion, the left and these billionaires that are supporting it are basically fighting for some sort of, uh, some sort of fascism or authoritarianism or totalitarianism or one world government or Agenda 21, whatever you want to call it. So in effect, these people are backing a process of censorship, which will, if it's brought to its logical conclusion, leads to totalitarianism and so ultimately they're going to be the authors of their own demise because once it gets to that stage then their assets just like happens in in Venezuela all their assets are going to be confiscated so they're actually digging their own grave and I just am wondering why they're still 
going down that left-wing totalitarian route of censorship. I just don't really think they're not leftist. I think they're trying to get something for nothing from the government, and they're standing behind that, getting something for nothing, whilst they're telling people that, you know, they're talking about freedom or whatever, or the average person thinks, well, they're rich, so, you know, they're not using the government. They're individuals. They may be individuals, but they're using the government to get what they want for nothing. I 100% agree. I think this is about regulating your competition out of existence. And whether it's, you know, free speech, which is really just a way of saying that person shouldn't be allowed to talk because he has ideas we don't like. The idea should be restricted to the ones I like, the ones that help my business. There's that. The other one you're seeing is not only free speech, but have you noticed lately how many of these jokers want to regulate artificial intelligence? And yet, what are, they, what are they the titans of? Usually, they're the titans of high tech. So you've got Bezos, who has Amazon. And of course, he's using lots of AI in his system. You'll have the Google execs. You'll have all these people who say that AI is a danger. That's nonsense. What they really mean is AI is something that only I should be able to use. There should only be a, a select few of us that can use this stuff because it's so dangerous that otherwise... I mean, this is the argument used by police for guns. Only police officers should have guns because they're so dangerous that if anyone else had them, they'd be abused. And then they go off and taser, you know, Sammy Yatim six times and murder the guy. Um, I was listening to Steve Bannon the other day, and he was talking about how the elite are purposely making the middle class poorer. It's a planned process. And he talked about examples. It's something to check into, but it's something that you mentioned. Why are they doing this? Because they want to. <laughs> Um, it has to do with uh, the rush on the banks and all of that stuff in the past, but it's something to look into for sure. But here again, to Paul's point, they're, they're, they're eventually going to be regulating themselves out of existence. That's my point. They'll so be dead I, by then. <laughs> they live in the now. I, I think there's also a case to be made where they, the regulated become the regulators. Uh, so I don't think there's any danger of them disappearing. It's exactly what Paul said, it's their competition will be disappearing. Because the phenomenon that largely happens is when you are regulated by the government, you become part of the government. It's not like we're going to have 1917. It's more like 1933. Because they'll still have a business. It'll just be regulated by people they know and are friendly to them. And they won't care because they're still being allowed to profit. Right. So while I, I agree with you in the sense that the general public will suffer greatly under that authoritarianism, those who have big companies will not. Because the feeling on the left now is that they do need businesses to exist. They don't want to command the heights of everything anymore. I really think that's gone. They've accepted the 1930s model of Italy. Tell China that. Well, that's what China is, though. China is the perfect example of what Mussolini wanted. You've got private businesses and you have state businesses all existing and competing with each other. You've got eventually a model of uh, one party, one state. So you've got pretty much what they wanted anyways. Mm -hmm. And what they have rejected is the state itself running everything. Because that, that was Mussolini's argument against the communists was that the, the, the state shouldn't control everything. We should just control enough so that we don't have to worry about it. Well, there's, I'd say there's two possibilities there. There's both the fascist slash Nazi 
thing, which is what you're talking Corporatist. about. Corporatists, yes. Where the government doesn't necessarily own everything, but it tells all the owners how they're going to run their business and how much money they're going to be allowed to keep and et cetera. Fascism. That's the fascism. But the other is, of course, communism, where the state just says, well, we're taking over and thanks for creating it for us. Now, to the first point, I'm reminded of Christopher, the character Christopher in The Sopranos. And he's trying to explain to these couple of thugs, he says, when you're bleeding a guy, you don't take all his blood at once. You just take a little bit at a time so that you keep getting blood from the guy, you know. Don't kill him. And that's the fascist way. The, the communist way is, of course, you just take the whole thing because you believe that ultimately anybody can run these businesses. Anybody could do what they did. They just got it by way of cheating and lying. That's the communist belief is that nobody possibly could have been any smarter than anybody else or any better than anybody else. So we'll just steal it back and then the people will own it and we'll run it just as well as, as Bezos did or any of these other guys, which is wrong. But the Bezos of the world, just like the Euron Brooks of the world, for that matter, are so confident that capitalism by economic means, not by philosophical means, but by economic means will prevent the rise of communism. And I don't think there's any historical case for that. I think that business is not a force to defeat communism. Philosophy is, but business isn't. Trade isn't a force. Trade's an effect of a force. It can be replaced with anything. It'll be defeated. And the Bezos of the world who think, hey, oh, it's okay, I'll just play, I'll get involved in this dirty little game where I get to have an unregulated seg sector, but then I want this regulated for my own benefit, will ultimately, just like, you know, those comics, like Mr. A, someone dabbles in the gray and they, they finally find themselves inevitably falling into the black of evil. In other words, being destroyed by what they dabbled with. And it's really important, I think, for businesses not to dabble, to say, no, this is wrong. I'm against, you know, violations of free speech. I'm against regulation of AI. No, they're not. They, they think they can have their cake and eat it too. And so for that reason, I think that the fascism argument might actually be the weaker argument. I think the communism argument is stronger. I think that ultimately the something for nothingers will never be satisfied. They're, they're the ongolians of politics and they will ultimately... Okay, on that point, on that point there, I completely agree it would be a temporary state for corporations to exist in that way. Yeah. And that ultimately it would fall back to a total government control. I have no problem with that, but they'd be long gone. So they're, they're players in that game, but it won't be the same players. And by then all the rest will be forgotten. Right. And that's how it's going to go. And that's the way it usually goes with any sort of authoritarianism. I agree. The usual method of control internally for a corporation is today in Canada, multiculturalism. It's not so much a racial thing as it is a tool for government and corporations to choose arbitrarily who they're going to hire. The power has been taken out of the managers. They no longer have the discretion to hire who they wish and they think is a good candidate. And you're absolutely right when, they, um, when you talk about crony, cronyism to the hilt. And it is destroying this country, and it needs to be rectified. Let me quote Gary McHale. He said, freedom isn't free. You have to fight for it. And I'm afraid that a lot of people don't realize how much they have to fight. It's not enough to hear something good on the internet. You have to get up and act on it. Yeah, hashtag is not a movement. That's right. <laughs> and I, I agree with that because I'm 60. My parents were 40 years older. I was taught 
a different history, a different background, a different option. I grew up with it. I grew up with people that believed in freedom. They would, they went to war to fight for property rights and individual freedom. But today, if you're going to school now, how do you know the difference? You know, unless you have parents that teach you the difference or whatever, you don't learn another option from anybody. The politicians are talking about something for nothing. The businesses are running their business getting something for nothing to get ahead. How would you know there is an alternative? Or that in the long run that it'll actually work out better for you. To speak to the broader issue, and Milton Friedman used to always argue that freedom tends to lose in the longer term because freedom is in the general interest. All other systems are in someone's specific interest. People who have a specific or special interest are much more driven and much more likely to take action to protect their personal interests than they are to worry about the other guy and to worry about the general interest. Even though they might intellectually fully understand the importance of that freedom and what happens once it's gone, they'll still work with their own, you know, towards their own general interest. And I think, Rob, that speaks a bit to your point. Why are they acting in a way that's going to end up self-defeating, you know? I think that's part of the reason. They're simply acting in their own self-interest, misguided though it is, because they want to preserve their monopoly, they've achieved a certain status, and they want to keep it there. They don't want Mr. A, B, C, or D down the line coming up and taking their place. And I think that's a big obstacle that freedom has in in the general. That's why you need a philosophic base for it, and you need to have a broader understanding and appreciation of what freedom is all about and why it even helps people in their own specific self-interest. I think that's bang on, because now that I've had an association with the philosophical side and learned all that, yes, now that makes total sense to me, but that's the secret, is the philosophical point of it. But until I was introduced to it, it was just because I grew up with freedom-oriented people. Sure. And for that, I agree that Ayn Rand, there's no better spokesman for freedom and, and a good philosophy than Ayn Rand's objectivism. I think it goes back to what we were starting with, with Trump. And I think that the general is going to lose to the specific. So if you have people who want, in general, everybody to have freedom, you're going to lose to those who have a specific agenda of one or two items because it might be in their interest. And that's, I think, more what you were alluding to. So when you said Trump wants tariffs and they're in a given context bad, but specifically it's in his interest to introduce those tariffs if he wants to decouple from China. But philosophically, that's a wrong idea because in general, tariffs are wrong. But they could be specifically correct against China because China doesn't have a free market anyways. They could be employing slave labor. They could be doing all kinds of terrible things. But if your litmus test is just free trade, then it's obviously wrong. Yeah, if, if, if someone's got someone locked in a basement making clothes, and you know that the person who's selling you clothes is getting them from the person locked in his basement, then it's wrong to purchase clothes from that person. Right. So if the Chinese government is forcing people to work in factories to the point where they want to commit suicide and they have to set up nets around the building to prevent people from dying when they jump off the roof, maybe it's not the greatest policy to allow goods into your country from such a factory. Right. I, I think that the philosophy is very important in general, but it can't be specific enough to give you freedom. 
like the policy that you may want a politician to employ, like Trump might give you a tax cut, but you still got income tax, right? So getting rid of the income tax would be impossible, but giving a tax cut is probable, but you're never going to defeat the income tax. That's never going to happen. Well, it would take ultimately a philosophical change of such a magnitude that we've never seen before. So maybe perhaps if the policy of uh, fiat currency was changed to a gold standard. Yeah, that'd be a policy change. I don't think it necessarily would be a... It's not a philosophical. Not a philosophical change because too often people try to get away with how can we achieve this change with merely an economic argument? So what do they always do? They say, this will produce more overall profit or this will create more overall wealth or there'll be wider benefit. Right. And I think also there was the argument about platforms uh, being able to censor people because it's a private business, which in general, we would agree that a private business should allow people on their property as they wish. Yeah, it's their and property to decide how it's used. Right. And that's, that's the argument that the left is now using against anybody on the right giving an argument on their platform. They're saying, well, it's a private business. You know, Twitter can decide who goes on their platform and say what they want. And it's up to Twitter. So I think that... Uh, I'm, I'm in favor of that argument. I, I mean, Twitter is a private company. It is, totally. Doesn't that turn it back to the publisher versus... That was the... I think that's one of the issues, yeah. Yeah. But it doesn't eliminate anybody else from competing with them, putting something on their own website or somewhere to promote their argument. I've never heard a politician object to something based on the fact that it's just morally wrong. When they pass a legislation, you I've never heard a politician say, well, I don't support it because it's wrong. They normally just support it. Yeah, because it's popular. Yeah. And usually if they, if they say it's wrong, because they have said that sometimes, you know. I mean, we, usually when it comes to social issues like gay marriage or, you know, that kind of thing. Abortion. Or abortion, they'll say something's wrong or evil or what have you, but only if it's popular to say that it's wrong or evil. And if they think they've got enough support in saying certain words, then they'll say those words. But even then, it's disingenuous because they may or may not actually believe in those things. They may just believe that they better say these words because if they don't say these words, they're going to be presumed not to believe in them. Like the parades, okay? If you didn't attend the parade, you're against everyone in the parade. Well, that's a heck of a presumption, you know. Maybe not in certain cases. Maybe you have more data about the person who's not attending the parade. Maybe they've said things that make you think, oh, yeah, independently of not going to the parade, that person clearly is anti whoever attends the parade. But, um, yeah, I think politicians, what comes out of their mouth isn't even necessarily when it's about, a, about an ethical position can't be trusted. It, then again, the ethical position could be based just upon popularity. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to talk about us, the average guys, the John Doe's. If anybody should ask you what the average John Doe is like, you couldn't tell him because he's a million and one things. He's Mr. Big and Mr. Small. He's simple and he's wise. He's inherently honest, but he's got a streak of larceny in his heart. He seldom walks up to a public telephone without shoving his finger into the slot to see if somebody left a nickel there. <laughs> he's the man the ads are written for. He's the feller everybody sells things to. He's Joe Dokes, the world's greatest stooge and the world's greatest strength. You'll find us everywhere. We raise the crops, we dig the mines, work the factories, keep the books, 
fly the planes and drive the buses. And when a cop yells, stand back there, you, he means us, the John Doe's. We've existed since time began. We built the pyramids. We saw Christ crucified, pulled the oars for Roman emperors, sailed the boats for Columbus, retreated from Moscow with Napoleon, and froze with Washington at Valley Forge. In our struggle for freedom, we've hit the canvas many a time, but we always bounce back because we're the people, and we're tough. <laughs> They've started a lot of talk about free people going soft, that we can't take it. That's a lot of hooey. A free people can beat the world at anything, from war to tiddlywinks, if we all pull in the same direction. the man you all know as John Doe. I took that name because it seems to describe the average man. And that's me. Well, it was me before I said I was going to jump off the city hall roof at midnight on Christmas Eve. Now I guess I'm not average anymore. Now I'm getting all sorts of attention. From big shots, too. You've been double-crossed. The mayor and the governor, for instance. They don't like those articles I've been writing. You're an imposter, young fellow! That's a pack of lies you're telling. Can I just introduce maybe another topic and then throw it back to everybody else at the table? But it's been my observation that we've been talking about fake news as though it's something new, right? And I've gone through the archives of Freedom Party right back to 1980. If there's one thing that continues to rear its ugly head, it's the idea that the media have always lied about what's going on. Well, let's go back a little bit. Go back even further yeah. and the Hearst Papers. Remember the Cuban War crisis, the uh, Spanish-American War, and the, the fake news about... Lusitania. There you go. So there, there's lots of fake news that is, has existed for a long time. Propaganda? It's not... Yeah, it's, it's, it's more propaganda than news, and that's what we get now. Now we get it more clearly, where you can see it, because there's so many other options. And because they're losing their grip on the populace, because we've got the internet now, everybody can be a, a publisher. Everybody is a publisher who joins a Twitter or a Facebook. We're all publishing our ideas, our thoughts, etc. every day. And nobody particularly cares to read the newspapers, which is why they're all in decline. They had this uh, ability to tell us about a portion of what was going on, sometimes a, a mis uh, misdescribed portion of what was going on. But they had so much ink and so much... Of a, of a monopoly on the, the channels of information that they could create an alternative reality. Now they're angry that they're no longer the masters of reality. We've, well, got, we've got our own ways to get at what's going on and to, and to spread that information out and share it with other people so that the lies get caught. Now there's still a huge effort to make sure that their news gets at the top. Oh yeah. And that's uh, YouTube giving precedence to the bigger players, the corporate players. So if, if you're interested in the news, the, the algorithm on YouTube will tend to give you the mainstream news media. Right. And, of course, that has really hurt the smaller players in this field. So they, they haven't given up. No. They're still out there trying. Right. Effectively, they're saying we've got a lot more writers now, but we're going to be the editors still. Right. So you can write all the articles you want, Gord and Paul and et cetera, but we're not going to publish them. And we'll find reasons not to do so. And one of the ways we do that, of course, is just by, you know, uh, shadow banning you or what have you. 
reducing the number of eyes that ever see what you've posted artificially, not because of the in interest they have in what you've written, but because of just the, the channel itself not showing it to people. Right. So now the platform is right. going to try and interfere in that. Right. And hasn't there been uh, cases of this come up in court about whether something is a publisher or something is a platform and that they have an obligation if they're a platform rather than a publisher? Yeah, I think, I think what you're talking about is uh, cases of slander and libel and whether they, you know, the Facebook or the Twitter or whatnot can be sued for defamation because somebody using their platform said something defamatory. Okay, you say, oh, so-and-so robs banks and you said it on Twitter. Right. Does Twitter get sued for defamation because it was published on their website and nobody did anything about it? In, in Canada, we had freedominion.ca or whatever it was, which fought in courts for years and ultimately was held liable for something that one of the people posting on its website had said. So they were a platform. Well, I think they were treated like a publisher. Right. So how would that apply, though, into uh, you know, broadcast media then? So if you're a radio station and somebody who's interviewed on that station slanders somebody, does the radio station get sued? Yeah, I think there is a concern about that. So you'll normally hear the either they'll, they'll do a, a drop, I think they call it, you know, where yeah. they prevent the comment sure. from going out, or else the host will say, but of course, we don't know that to be true, and that's just speculation on your part, Mr. Johnson. Okay, yeah. so there is a case where uh, a current politician in the U.S. is suing another politician. Yes. As Tulsi Gabbard is suing Hillary Clinton. Because, you know, everybody is apparently a Russian agent. And <laughs> Hillary claimed that Tulsi was a Russian agent, and she is suing her for slander. Well, that's one person talking about another person, so that would be pretty clear. But what if, what if the comment were made on Twitter? Then the question becomes, is Twitter publishing that comment? Right. So if somebody else publishes somebody else's quote, and that's there. happened many times. Yeah, yeah. There's a song by Buddy Holly called Peggy Sue Got Married. The lyrics are, um, please don't tell, no, 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 don't say that I told you so. I just heard a rumor from a friend. I don't say that it's true. I'll just leave that up to you. If you don't believe, I'll understand. Do you know the girl who's been in nearly every song? This is what I heard, although the story could be wrong. So that's basically everything about Trump, isn't it? Well, it's about Peggy Sue got married. She's now wearing a band of gold, you see. And that's just a rumor. Is right. she married or is she not? But the setup there is, don't blame me if it's false. And in the law, that guy would get blamed if it was false and defamatory. If it was, you know, Peggy Sue uh, robbed banks. And he's, he's saying, oh, don't, I don't know if it's true or not. He would still get sued, could still be sued for defamation because he carried the, the allegation forward. And whether he knew it was true or not is not the question. The question is whether you repeated the bad thing about someone. And uh, different jurisdictions have different defamatory and slan slander laws. Oh, yeah. And how is this now going to cross over then? So if you're an American and you say something slanderous about a Canadian on a Canadian site, can that law apply if you do it in Canada? I would think that if the thing that is, is carrying the message forward is treated as a publisher, then the publisher could get sued, yes. If it's treated as a platform, I'm not sure that that's all that developed yet in Canada. Because I think that, you know, Free Dominion was treated not as a platform, but as a publisher. Well, the way I see it, though, is that what they want to do is bring a lot of these laws together pretty much everywhere. Because platforms and publishers on the Internet, they're all over the globe. So if you have some, somebody protected in some other country, like the U.S. has the First Amendment and Canada doesn't, 
does that mean that you could block somebody out in the United States if you're Canadian? Because Canadian law would apply to a Canadian. Is that going to cause a problem on the internet? Well, I think it, yeah, it causes lots of legal problems. Yeah. My topic, of course, is extremely controversial and it depends upon an ancient, well, not quite ancient distinction, but that between the left and the right in politics. As you know, that distinction came into being at the French Revolution, where the left were those people who were on the left of the king, that's the um, uh, conseil, uh, and the, the right were those who were on the right of the king, who happened to be on the right of the king. Could have been the other way round, and indeed it was the other way round for everybody except the king. Um, <laughs> but um, the words have stuck with us, and I think it's part of the confusion that uh, prevails in modern politics that we still uh, don't really know quite what is contained in either idea. But a bit of history, I think, is needed to begin this talk. We have grown up, at least my generation grew up, with the idea that there's a, a dis profound distinction between capitalism on the one hand and socialism on the other. This distinction was uh, emphasized and rubbed into us by, of course, the Cold War uh, and the Soviet Union's claim to be a socialist state in the spirit of Marx. And, of course, it went back to Karl Marx's own writings, and in particular the writings of his uh, disciple Engels, to uh, try and embrace all of politics in that distinction. The distinction between capitalism on the one hand, socialism on the other. Capitalism is failing, there will be a crisis, and it will fall, and socialism is the alternative that we are preparing to put in its place. And that's a very exciting and seductive view of things. But I think we must remember that the, the two isms here are not in the same category. One is descriptive, the other is normative. Capitalism, that word, is used to describe an economic system, one based on the free market and private property. Socialism, however, was not, at least originally, meant to describe a system because there was no such system in existence. It was a project with a goal, a goal to bring about uh, a different kind of society and very little effort was put into describing exactly how the arrangements of that society would be. If you look around yourself at the people who call themselves socialists today, you'll be astonished by the extent of their prosperity. Um, so I think we should not be uh, uh, de deceived by these labels into thinking that we understand the confrontation between left and right in these terms. But one reason the left is winning is that it has been easy of late to demonize capitalism demonize the kind of economic system that we enjoy, and at the same time to promise some kind of rival system, the details of which remain hidden and in any, in any case of little interest uh, to uh, the, the general public. To understand this, I think we, we should go back to the original defense of the free market in the works of Adam Smith. 
And when Adam Smith defended the free market, he didn't use the word capitalism. This is a, a, a later theoretical term, I think, introduced by Saint-Simon, taken up by, by Marx, and, and associated with the theories of 19th century politics. Smith, in The Wealth of Nations, is describing a society in which fundamental relations of trust and shared loyalties are never put in question. The background assumption to his whole defense of the market economy uh, was that markets also create relations of mutual dependence, which are not in themselves market relations, but must be sustained by a sense of responsibility. And whence comes that sense? Here is one point where the left and the right, as they now are, really do differ. People on the left tend to think of trust, if they think of it at all, as coming from a shared project. You know, we, we are building socialism together, creating a fairer society, shedding all the old constraints and hierarchies. Uh, and that's, by joining in this project, we learn to trust each other, as soldiers at the front will always trust each other because they have to. When you've got a goal that you share, trust is one of the um, immediate byproducts of that. But people on the right don't see trust in that way. They think of it as something inherited. That it's not something that comes from having a shared goal. You can have it without a goal. Indeed, it's the thing that makes it possible to live without a shared goal. Just being the person you are, doing the thing that is yours, and nevertheless relying upon your neighbors to accept you as that. So people on the right tend to think of trust as inherited. It already exists. It's a kind of bequest. I think, insofar as we can talk of the distinction between right and left today, today, that is the real distinction between them. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Can I, can I just jump in here? It's uh, Robbie. And I think if we can get back to philosophy and its role in politics and um, the way I'm thinking about it is that the problem of politics is that there's not enough philosophy involved in it. I think that's clearly demonstrated when you see that there's nowadays there's no distinction between left and right anymore. I mean, even Nazis now are called on the right, whereas people don't have an understanding of what's left and right anymore. Left and right these days are all on the left, and yet that distinction isn't being made. So there's a, really a choice here in philosophy of, of going two ways. One of them is collectivism, and then the other one, which is on the left. And then the only thing that's ever on the right is individual rights and the philosophy behind that. So I think when we're debating politics like we are today, that um, we should be talking more about the philosophy of politics. So I just wanted to throw that out there. This is Dave. I think Robbie's right, except there's a lot of support for either Doug Ford or, or Trump or certain individuals that doesn't come from philosophy at all. I came to freedom not through f philosophy. I learned that as I went along. It was more just the proper role of government. And there's a, you know, individual freedom. And there's where I grew up, that's what people believed in. So over the years... Um, political parties changed their beliefs, but the individuals didn't. And 
so a lot of the grassroots support for either Ford or Trump, it comes from just a belief in in individual rights, and they don't really get bogged down in the philosophy or anything else. It's just a personal belief, and they may not even understand the philosophical part, just that they agree with freedom. Right. So that gets back to the original point, right? So the objectivists or the uh, folks who are really heavily into philosophy are kind of expecting too much from people who have no particular knowledge or interest in philosophy. And so if that's the case now, it probably has always been the case that philosophy is of, of interest only to a small percentage of the populace. So when we're thinking about pol politics and blaming people for supporting this guy or that guy or this gal or this that gal, I don't think it's realistic to say nobody should like that politician because philosophically he's not, he's not doing what he should. None of them, from my perspective, none of them have been real followers of any philosophy except perhaps uh, you know, philosophy that, that underpins communism. And, and, and even there, all they've done is really said, I want something for nothing. It's not that they have any particular logical argument for why they want something for nothing. You know, I, I think we're losing the, um, the grip on this when, when we don't agree that freedom and individual rights, it's, it's not only a matter of law, but it's, it is philosophy. I mean, freedom is philosophy at its, at its core. And so that's why I think that no, no matter what side of the political fence you're on, you're always dealing with a, a basic philosophy, whether it's left, which is collectivism, or right, which is individual rights. Oh, yeah. Well, in fact, no matter wh whether you've studied philosophy or not, you're going to be operating according to one. Even when you say, I, I'm going to do what I feel, that too is a philosophy. I think what Dave was talking about when he says people aren't philosophical is that they, that they don't get into studying it on a university level where you're starting with metaphysics and then you learn the metaphysics and then you learn the epistemology and then you learn the ethics, etc., etc. Right. Most people come at it in midstream. And just a couple of things that I wanted to comment on that I heard around the table here. Uh, Ted was talking about, you know, politicians all being liars and they don't tell the truth. I don't know that that's necessarily true. I think a lot of politicians just are out of their, out of their league in a way. They, they may have good intentions going in. They don't understand the nature of government. They may be trying to enact some plan that just fails. They might have worked very hard to achieve their end, but they didn't do it, and then we all assume, well, that guy's a liar because he didn't get his goal because he was defeated in the, in the democratic arena. And when it comes to truth, and, and Gore, this speaks to a lot of that whole conversation about, you know, who do you sue and all that. I, I think... It comes down to buyer beware. I've said on the show before that ever since the whole idea of the media of any sort, you know, the first newspaper came out, we were getting BS. I mean, that's just the history of people writing because that's what writers do. They, a lot of it is just their own perceptions. And it seems to me that since the advent of social media and the power of individuals to do anything, this is the first time in history that the average person can actually, if he takes the effort, determine the truth for himself yeah. and look at the evidence straight on. I mean, this is the first time we can hear what CNN is saying or what CNBC is saying and then compare it to what 
10,000 people are showing on on their cell phones, right? And they're going, well, wait a minute. These two things don't match. Well, perfect example of that, Bob. Well, two of them. Back in 99, I ran in uh, Toronto Centre Rosedale for the Freedom Party of Ontario. And they had these uh, electoral, uh, what do you call it? Riding profiles. That's what they called it. And uh, so they said, with respect to the riding that I was running in, the four candidates in this riding are. Mm-hmm. And they named these four people. But there were 12. So I wrote a simple letter to them and I said, uh, you know, Dear Toronto Star, that's the paper it was published in, there are actually 12 people running in that riding, not four. I got a letter back that said, Dear Mr. McKeever, we have forwarded your concern to to our ombudsman. One day before polling day, I got a letter from the ombudsman that said, Dear Mr. McKeever, when you're a factor, we'll write about you. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I hadn't asked them to write about me. I had just said that they had published a factual falsehood, you know, that there were only four candidates. Other example, I remember distinctly uh, running in St. Paul's, and they had, I didn't catch this right away, they positioned the participants, I believe there were seven or eight of us, and they put the three mainstream party candidates all to the right, right beside the MC, and all of the rest of the candidates to the left, if you're looking at the panel, okay? When they took the photographs for the newspaper, they took a photograph of the three plus the MC and talked about those three candidates as though the other people weren't there at all. So they have cropped out people. As another example, you, you had that yourself, Bob, yep. where they cropped you out of the photo and didn't mention that you were there. Even, it, it can even be the case that there was a, you know, a standing ovation for you. I, they, I monopolized that particular meeting. I, I was up that. there a third of the time. There were like 1,500 people in attendance. And then the next day, there was just one line mentioning that I was even there. Yeah. I was actually subbing for Al Gretzky at the time who couldn't make the meeting. And... Um, they cropped my image out of the picture off the panel of all the panelists that were sitting in, in front of the crowd. It was outrageous. Yeah. This was in the London Free Press, our local paper here. And, of course, they had it out for me ever since uh, I gave them all that problem by defeating them in front of the uh, Ontario Human Rights Commission right. once because that was all over a complaint that, that they actually initiated and blamed on a third party. Right. And so that's a long history. We don't want to go into that. Ted. One more thing. Yeah, um, yeah you're right about um, all politicians not being lying, even though they're not intentionally lying. Uh, it's more a sense of life. It's more a sense of uh, something's fishy here that this guy's saying, because when people listen to politicians speak, they know it doesn't really relate to their life. And if it does, it, it eventually means more taxes and more regulations of some kind. And getting down to um, what really matters to people's lives. Like, I'm from Brampton South, and a real concern is crime. Crime is growing, violent crime is exploding, and people are very concerned. But they don't know what to do about it. And if somebody could come up with a solution, they'd be really happy. And then something they could actually do and act on, then they would would, uh, follow that. They would vote for that person. I can can understand that. And, And part of the problem, too, is that politicians want votes. So they want to appeal to both sides of an issue a lot, right? Yeah. Or, and, and they do that often by not stating their position clearly or making it fuzzy enough that both sides of the debate might think that they're on side. Mm-hmm. Saw that here locally. 
um, with our mayor, Ed Holder. When he was running for mayor, he ran these big banner ads on top of the London Free Press that said, uh, can vote against BRT. And I remember telling someone, that says, well, that means he's going to support the BRT. And of course, that's what he's done. And there was a tremendous opposition against the BRT. He just positioned himself to be able to say that he could vote against it if he wanted to, which is not the same as saying, I will vote against it, right? So it's just the way politicians manipulate the public in order to get votes. The other classic one along that line is, I'm open to considering. Yes. <laughs> as opposed to what? Have your fingers in your ears? <laughs> Now, you'll have to forgive me if I'm a bit blunt, but that's the sort of chap I am. Frankly, this department... Yeah, care for this chair very much. Uh, we uh, can change it, Minister. Can you? Uh, we can change anything, Minister. The furniture, decor, office routine, your wish is our command. In that case, I'd like a new chair. I hate swivel chairs. It used to be said there were two kinds of chairs to go with two kinds of minister. One sort uh, folds up instantly, the other sort goes round and round in circles. <laughs> <laughs> So why is the left in ascendancy if it is? Uh, I think there, uh, there are two general explanations. One is what the right lacks, the right conceived in the way I've just described it, and the other being what the left has. One of the things that the, the, the right <coughs> lacks is the immediate and remembered experience of what socialism was like. Uh, those who've been through it, especially those who've been through the Eastern European version of it, uh, will take a lot of persuading that they want to do it again. But the, the younger generation who have not been through it, uh, we can't rely upon telling them what it was like because they will always recognise that, that we have a, an interest in persuading them and they will just not believe it. The other thing that the right lacks, and this is really important, is a full and articulated belief in itself and its values. It's part of the nature of conservatives, uh, I say conservative people, to muddle along. The thought is, you know, we're at home here, this is our place, it's not, it's not that bad, we want to keep it like this, uh, and we recognise, and I think all rational beings recognise, that it's much easier to destroy things than to create them. And so the, the good things that, by which we're surrounded, like this university, uh, um, like our own family, uh, peace in the, in the streets and all the rest, those things are very good and we know that they could be destroyed tomorrow and that indeed there are people who want to destroy them. So we need a statement of things to believe in. When Mrs. Thatcher <coughs> uh, suddenly came to eminence in the late 70s, uh, and retained that eminence for uh, a decade, she latched onto the idea of freedom, saying that what we are about is freedom, extending freedom to the, indivi to the individual in all the areas of his or her endeavor, not just freedom uh, to, uh, to um, undertake enterprises in the economic sphere, but freedom of education, freedom of opinion, freedom of association, Freedom just to be the thing that fulfills you and that we, by supporting that, are of course in conflict automatically with socialists who want to control things, want to control things in the interests of greater equality 
or the interests of a, of a, of a state-controlled economy and so on. And the Cold War, which was still in existence, gave some kind of credibility to what Mrs. Thatcher said. And she, unite, she was united with <laughs> President Reagan and other American politicians in endorsing this idea that the Western alliance was an alliance around the idea of freedom freedom of the individual, as embodied, of course, in the American Constitution, which was the primary document on which um, Americans always depend. Uh, and um, <clears throat> all that could be taken away, that freedom. So we must combine in order to defend it. Yeah, but, of course, we've lost the, the situation which makes that piece of propaganda as plausible as it was to my generation. It doesn't en anymore hold a great deal of appeal, especially for young people, because most young people in, uh, today will say, look, uh, we have freedom, that's fine, we, we accept that. Uh, all, what we want to do is to reconcile that freedom with certain other and more important or equally important goals, such as equality, a just economy, uh, a society in which people are not uh, at loggerheads with each other and so on. So, uh, uh, and it's quite possible for a socialist or socialist-minded person to use the idea of freedom in that way. So I think that many conservatives feel that they, they have no longer got the kind of slogan that uh, Mrs. Thatcher provided them with. All they have is what they have. Now, my own view is that that's enough. Uh, and appreciating that is what uh, politics ought to be about. But of course, it's not, uh, not something that you can easily transcribe into a, a, an activist political doctrine. You know, uh, on the left, it's very easy to be an activist. You're talking about the, the future society you want to create. And you can have a big notice board with the slogan, you know, forward on it, and people marching behind you. This is naturally appealing. But in my kind of conservatism, that notice board could be put up, but it would have only one word on it, which would be hesitate. You know, and you can, you can see that won't actually recruit a great deal of followers. But we still nevertheless have to have some kind of idea of what it is we're for, if we're to persuade those who haven't yet uh, been persuaded. And, and this is where I think one has to have some recognition of the importance for ordinary people of the idea of home, the place where they are, the embedded legal order that they've inherited, and their country is an icon of that. But the Conservative Party is clearly not prepared to fight that battle, or any other battle as far as one can see. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and again, a Conservative will say, well, that's only right, that's what conservatism is. It's a, not about battles. It's about the love of the place where you are and the attempt to conserve it. What's wrong with that? I was listening to a speech that was uh, given a couple of years ago by the late Roger Scruton, who just passed away in the last few weeks. And he was talking about how the quote-unquote ancient distinction between left and right is continually confused. Brought up an interesting observation. He said capitalism is a descriptive thing. We describe a system that exists. Socialism is, he called it normative, but I would call it prescriptive. Socialism is somebody's idea of a plan that doesn't really exist yet and hasn't existed. And 
one thing he's noticed is that since the days of Margaret Thatcher, when she was able to use the idea of freedom as a popular idea that people latched on to, that things have changed. That whole idea has now been forgotten. Pe there's, there's a whole new generation out in the sense of that socialism is forgotten in terms of what it meant in practice. The new generation doesn't know what happened in Europe. And the right itself lacks the immediacy of what socialism was really like and doesn't have an articulated belief in its values. Then he said something very interesting that I want to bounce off you and see what kind of reactions you get to this idea. Clearly, he says, the left is still in ascendancy. The right is dropping. How, and we're talking in very general terms. And he says, on the left, it's easy to be an activist. When you're an activist, you're not really concerned with the philosophy, but you're always moving forward is what reflects an activist. And I found that very odd that, that he mentioned that years ago when just in the recent Canadian election, we saw, what, four out of the five parties take as their slogan some version of moving forward. Yeah. Because they're on the left. That is a sign of action. And he said there's a metaphysical reason for that. Conservatives more would prefer to create an, uh, an appreciation of what they have, the inheritance they have. And he says the thing is that that can really be come under attack because that's why we're getting attacked for being racist, you know, xenophobic and all the other things because you want to preserve something you have. But he said the left has a politics of goals which can be collectively achieved. The reason is that the future, when you're talking about the future, it can be changed. The past cannot be. When the right talks about the past and preserving things, they're not really advocating any kind of change, right? They're just advocating a preservation of something that is valuable. But on the other side of the coin, the future is unknowable, but the past is knowable. And he said the left likes to change things, and the right likes to know things and understand things. Do you think his observations are correct in that regard? Uh, I think he's absolutely right. But when he uses the right or he uses conservatives, he's not talking about a conservative of today or the right of today. He's talking traditional conservatives. And unfortunately, when we go into an election, we have a conservative or what's supposed to be a right-wing person talking about the same thing that the left are. So... He is right, but it's old-time conservative values. Ted? Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I see it, the main reason for that is the right are generally made of Christians, conservatives, or some kind of religious background, whether it's religions from different countries or different cultures. They're doctrinaire. Instead of thinking they adopt a certain creed, they adopt certain scriptures or, or surahs for the Quran, and they live by them. And I think that's a great inhibitor on their, on their thinking. They're less volitional, yeah. And the liberals are more, well, you're on your own. Use your mind, think a little, and uh, you, might come, you might come up with some kind of form of action. Not answer, but at least, at least some kind of action. And I think it takes a really genius individual, a very different kind of individual, to get the right ideas and actually act on them. Yeah, there's a difference between moving forward and moving forward in a way that doesn't mean moving forward over the edge of the cliff. You know, you can move forward up a mountain or you can move forward over the cliff. Forward is just a direction. It's not a destination, you know. And so I think you have to be really careful. Bob, you've often used this idea of moving away from freedom, or sorry, moving away from tyranny 
versus moving toward freedom. Right. But progressing doesn't tell you where, whether you're progressing away from something or progressing toward anything. It just says moving as opposed to what? Fossilizing. So if, if for example, there is some kind of injustice going on right now, any injustice you can point to, and then you say, conserve, don't change, what you're saying is, don't achieve justice. So naturally, moving forward is always going to be preferable to doing absolutely nothing. I don't think there's any, any kind of society in which you wouldn't have to move. So to monopolize the idea of movement, progress, is to, is to say that you've got one voice for justice and one voice against justice, you know, against the change that can fix problems. And the problem is with that, uh, that, that you're saying that no harm can be done by progressing, and that's a false it's a false statement. I think the biggest problem with the left is that they don't have any limiting principles. Right. So they just keep going. It's like they get, okay, gay rights. They got gay rights. They got, now they have to go further. So where do they go next? It's, it's constantly progressing. They need to keep moving. So they keep pushing the envelope because they have no limiting principles. It's not ever good enough for them because then what do they have to do? What victims do they have to rescue? That is their sole purpose in life is to be the savior, to fix society. And as society's doing fine, they're no longer needed. Yeah, there's certainly that. I mean, that's the, that's the nanny state, right? The personality that wants to be the nurturer, that, that thinks that they want to take away from the governed their individual decision-making power because the nanny knows better, you know? It's interesting because Mr. Scruton also pointed out that the evidence of history demonstrates that most change makes things worse, right? But also, he, he pointed out that politics is the labor of the negative, in politics, when you're seeking to change, whether you're on the left or right, you have to push the negative something. You're trying to correct something. Yeah. You're trying to correct previous situation. And this is part of the problem, is that what is that situation to the right? What has the right got that it can really connect with, with the public? Most people today, especially the younger generations, if you talk freedom to them, they think they've already got freedom, and that they're trying to mitigate freedom with some other values. They don't do comparative analyses on the left. They don't say, well, if I'm going to move in this direction, how is that better compared to whatever else would exist or exists now? And that's why the left gets itself into problems. Ted? Yeah, as far as moving, you do have to have a principled direction, and the principles that are necessary, they need to be realistically based rather than doctrinaire, rather than coming out of some scripture or creed that has no relation to reality at all. For that, we need new intellectuals. We need a new philosophy. And it is political parties like the Freedom Party of Ontario that I see hold the anchored principles to reality and with the ability to move in a direction. Toward freedom. Toward freedom, yes. That's a great generalization. It's perfect, yeah. And, and that's why I'm here. That's why I'm with the Freedom Party of Ontario, and uh, that's why I have uh, gone to jail with Gary McHale. That's why I make my stands, and this is where I am. And I enjoy it, and it's a happy life. It's a very good life. And I, I welcome anybody. I, uh, if you know anything about the Freedom Party, look at it better, look at it deeper, look at it, and join. That's my invitation to you. Couldn't end on a better note than that. Thanks, everybody, for your participation, and we'll see where this goes. Good luck, Dad. And with that inside joke, laden with sarcasm and a sense of, gee, I'm glad I'm not you, we'll have to wrap it up for this round. So be sure to join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right. 
and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. I wonder why Mr. Hilliard hasn't called to thank us for joining his campaign. Busy, no doubt. That reminds me. I think I'll send Lurch over and invite Hilliard to a little strategy meeting. We've been up nights just planning and planning for you. What are you planning? Show him the wonderful sign you painted for him. Everybody's fiend. <laughs> I didn't think you'd notice. <laughs>